and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I'm speaking with director Oscar Harding about his very unique documentary about an older gentleman who has a very DIY approach to filmmaking in a life on the farm. I would love to talk about your film. Oh, you're you're very kind. Thank you. Because your film is so incredibly interesting in terms of the way that it talks about both the aging process and art and how we interpret aging and death through art. First of all, would you like to take a minute to explain why it is that you got into this subject? Sure. So, um, you know, as is covered in the film, I first saw this um, shortly after my grandfather passed away in 2006. I was 10 at the time, about to turn 11. And, you know, we found this videotape and it was my late grandfather's neighbor. And my dad and his uh, sisters, my aunts, had this vague recollection of having seen this tape. So one of my aunts digitized it and dad and I sat down with my kid sister and he turned it off halfway through. And I just obsessed is the wrong word because that sounds a little bit unhealthy. But the images I had seen in, you know, that first half, it's not the most crazy stuff. And it just kind of sat at the back of my mind. Um, And what kind of brought this all to the fore? I want to say very late 2017, very early 2018, roughly, I want to say. Uh, Dom, one of the, the uh, three partners in our company, and he was a producer on the film along with myself and Ed, the other producer. Um, he's German and he and his uh, girlfriend and his parents had gone down to the West Country, which is what we roughly refer to as Devon, Cornwall and Somerset, those three counties just near Wales and Bristol. And he was basically staying in, a, in an inn or a, a B&B. And it was like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he was joking, saying, I'm surprised we got out there alive. <laughs> and that kind of jogged my memory. And I said, you know, I have a tape which reminds me a lot of that. And I lost it when we moved house. I just happened to bring it up in conversation with my aunt a couple of weeks later. And she said, well, you know, you're in luck. I was moving house and I happened to have the, the copy of my tape, you know, at the top of the pile. Get back to you in a few days and I'll give it to you. And, you know, when you... When you imagine stuff as a kid, you know, you have to go with a little bit of skepticism because I think you kind of exaggerate things and you imagine them to be more extraordinary than they actually are. So when I got this tape, I was excited, but I thought, yeah, it's probably going to be pretty mundane and nowhere near as crazy as I remember being as a little kid. And it was even more so. And I get to watch what was on the second half of that tape. And we don't want to get too much into spoiler territory because I think, you know, the one moment I'm talking about, like, I don't want to dance around because it's the big reveal in the film. I completely understand not wanting to totally give everything away. But one of the things that I think is so lovely about this film is that you've got this character who is at the center of all of these tapes and who is a real human who showcases a lot of what's great about humanity there on Coombe End Farm. It's really kind of fascinating thinking through the creative process of doing so much editing in camera. Do you have any real revelations while you were digging through all of the footage in terms of what had been done? Oh, you mean in terms of his actual filmmaking yeah. process, right? Well, uh, you know, we started shooting this thing in January 2019 and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that we had the main home video that kind of 
began this whole thing. And that was my grandfather's copy that Charles had given him. And there was footage we found later on, but one of the talking heads had told us about, you know, he was attaching skeletons to tractors and we thought, oh, that all sounds great. Maybe she's misremembering. You know, we spent years trying to find as much footage as we could and then we came across this last bit and just blew the whole thing wide open. And then after we did the Kickstarter campaign, his neighbor who's in the film reached out to us via Kickstarter and, you know, we managed to get him on camera. And, you know, we'd kind of learn about how he was doing the production side of it, but all the kind of American found footage of aficionados that we have in the film, they were able to offer real insight into, um, you know, the kind of titling, the software that he might use. I mean, I say software, he wasn't doing it on a computer, but, um, you know, the kind of tech he was using, the kind of hardware he was operating off of when he won one of his national photography competitions, he was given a, a Philips interactive CD player. He immediately exchanged it for another VCR to keep doing it the way he had always done it, uh, which just I found fascinating. You know, look, uh, myself and the other producers, when we were kids, you know, one of us is the eldest and he was doing stuff on an actual proper chunky old uh, camcorder you put on your shoulder like Charles did. Mm-hmm. I had an old crappy Sony mini DV and, you know, I do it via the TV and then my crappy old laptop. Um, yeah, we really identified with him. You know, it's one thing when you're a kid and we have like, you know, technology in the, you know, kind of early to mid 2000s. And it's, it's easy enough at that point and YouTube had come along. But, you know, he's doing all this when he's in his 60s and his 70s. He's in the middle of nowhere. He has no industry contacts. And this is, you know, he's picking up a hobby and a new craft, you know, when a lot of people don't, a lot of people get to their 60s and 70s and don't try anything new. And just it, the more we learn about the guy, the more and more I admired him and the more remarkable I found his story. And, you know, when you're a filmmaker, you have little moments of doubt, like, should we be showing this? Is this a good enough story to turn into a film? And just every different revelation we find about his life story from people who knew him and different facets of his life, or people who didn't know him, but, you know, kind of appreciated his work. It's just, it kept building up this beautifully complex picture of the man. And it is such a beautiful portrait too, because you have so many kinds of revelations along the way, as far as the story goes. But when you found that there were so many other people who were also aficionados of this footage, how did that feel in general to suddenly find yourself a part of a community around Charles Mm. and his life? So the community he sort of fostered uh, here in the States where we're both talking from, a lot of people have assumed that because the accent I'm calling from England, but I've lived here and I haven't gone back to the UK in the last uh, three years at this point. But um, we started shooting January 2019 and I got this job in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm calling from. So, you know, I, I told Dom and Ed, look, don't worry, I'll be back summer 2020. We'll finish off what was then still a short doc. And we all obviously know what happened there. But in the meantime, I had, you know, close to a year where I was just, you know, spinning my wheels and thinking, well, you know, I think it's a shame we have to wait, you know, another year to go and pick this up. You know, there's clearly a movement out here of people in America, you know, touring the country and their fan base who love all this found footage. Let's get a more modern perspective. So I brought it to them and that slowly started to develop. And I want to specify a very small cult following. He's not a a Tommy Wiseau or a Mark Borchard or a Winnebago man, a Jack mm-hmm. Rebney, anything like that. But then, of course, you know, that was a little bit less organic because, you know, we had reached out to these Americans. But then as you, you know, as people see later in the film, 
you know, in the 90s, long before I was even aware of who Charles Carson was, I was just a kid. Um, he had his own fan base that even he didn't know about. And he had kind of inspired and fostered this community out of London of people who loved his stuff and they were quoting this stuff. This is, you know, about uh, 15 years before we ever even thought to make a film about this. So I just think it's testament to his work. You know, we've, um, you know, the festival circuit we're, black, we're about to play uh, Italy, Poland, Romania, uh, possibly Mexico. We've got New Zealand, um, South Africa. Uh, we might be playing Antarctica. That's a whole other thing. Oh, wow. Um, just, You're getting I, every continent in there. That's I funny. mean, it's just, it, it's honestly testament to his work. And, you know, part of this is we really want his work to have as far a reach as I think he really wanted, because as the journey of this production went on, it became clear any kind of guilt or doubts you had or like ethical quandaries of should we be showing this stuff? It became very clear he was a distributor. Now, Grandi was amongst the village, but then he started to submit to competitions. You don't do that and produce hundreds of tapes if you don't want people to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very clear he wanted an audience. So, you know, uh, we felt like we owed him a debt. I mean, one, there's this extraordinary story we're fortunate enough to bring to the world. And also, you know, he, he shot footage of my grandmother who passed away before I was born. Uh, and it's kind of the only record I have of her, this woman I never got to meet. So in a lot of ways, we felt we owed Charles a debt. And I like to think that this is us kind of paying him back for his extraordinary work. And it is extraordinary work looking at life and death on a farm in a very peculiar kind of way. But it's also a really lovely kind of snapshot of both the family and the animals and the nature around him. Do you find yourself looking at the footage going, oh, if only I had spent more time in Cornwall? Um, I mean... You know, his his work, it's an important document of Somerset and specifically Somerset at that time. It's funny, in the edit, um, myself and, and Dom and Ed and Hannah, our incredible editor, she is the unsung hero of this film, for a quick aside, uh, of how she edited. We generally kind of agreed on everything and create decisions and, you know, either I would put something forward and everyone would agree or they would and I'd go, oh, that's a better idea than I had. One of the few clashes we had is there's a little section which moves away from Charles and focuses on his farming contemporaries. You know, these are people where the accents are so thick, even I kind of struggle to understand them. We had to subtitle even for the English speaking audience. And I was really adamant on keeping that in because this is a time and a place in the way of life that's dying out. And even though, granted, he focused on himself a lot more, he was, you know, in these different cuts, capturing footage of all the other villages. So this is, you know, preserved in time. Um, and, you know, these are the kind of areas that don't get written about much and, you know, end up in historical documents that historians would use to go and, you know, chronicle rural Somerset or rural England uh, at certain periods. And I, I just felt, you know, this is a very personal film to me because it's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it was a little bit different for Dom and Ed they saw a great story but they're based in London and one is from London one's from Germany different cultural touch points but apart from Hot Fuzz and Straw Dogs and the work of an incredible <laughs> Cornish filmmaker called Mark Jenkin um, his debut feature didn't make it to the States but his second one Ennis Men is about to play Cannes um, and he's remarkable anyway 
um, these five films, including us, these are kind of the only examples I can think of stuff that is shot in this part of England. And we have a big problem with, you know, regionalized bias in the UK. I mean, just for example, um, slight tangent, but the, the, the Center for the Moving Image in Scotland just abruptly shut down. So we played the Edinburgh Film Festival and it may be that's the last ever edition of the world's longest running film festival. Um, they announced that. It's devastating. It's it absolutely is. a devastating blow. And there's been a lot of criticism of how the London-centric British Film Institute, which is meant to be the British Film Institute, mm-hmm. has kind of responded. Now, I hope that, you know, there's things in the works and they just have to save face to the public, uh, you know, and not show too fervent support. But, you know, um, there's Screen Yorkshire, there's Film Cymru, um, obviously things are in flux in Scotland and Northern Ireland has its own institution, but it's tough out there for regional filmmakers like us and, you know, place like East Anglia and all these different regions. It's exceptionally hard to see this stuff even in the UK. Now, I get this stuff wouldn't necessarily reach the States, but yeah, it, it's kind of dire straits. So I wanted to make sure we were representing that region that's very underseen. It's hard not to have a certain amount of nostalgia i would imagine as well for that life in in certain senses the way that it is depicted in the film i mean i I never grew up on a farm or in the heart of rural somerset uh that was my my grandparents but i would go there enough that you know it's like how i would i would divide a lot of my childhood between bristol where i lived as a kid rural somerset and then um ireland where my mother's side the family is from so these three slightly different kind of yeah. worlds kind of encapsulate a lot of my childhood. So, you know, I, I, I remember Irish TV as much as someone living in Ireland would, for example. Mm-hmm. I kind of, not in exactly the same way because I wasn't part of the farming community, but I like to think I understand rural Somerset, uh, you know, about as well as some people who would just move there and ingratiate themselves into the community. So in terms of nostalgia, I mean, you know, it would usually be to go and see my grandfather in his cottage and that was it. So I like to think I didn't have this kind of this kind of skewed, rose-tinted view of what rural Somerset was. I mean, you know, so some of the some of the stuff in Charles's footage is pretty morbid, and I think helps. You know, it's a love letter in one way, but it's not like some saccharine, candy-coated love letter. You know, like we yeah. kind of scratch beneath the surface, and you see some of the darkness and the the more macabre stuff out of it. That's part of the appeal, though. I don't feel like his work would have the lasting impact it's had without the morbid and the macabre corners oh, of for what sure. he was doing by any stretch. I mean, that footage is extraordinary. Um, you really shouldn't when you're a filmmaker. Um, you shouldn't look at reviews of your film. But it's our first feature. You know, we've kind of dipped our toe into that. Probably shouldn't. Generally, the response has been very positive. But what's been really heartening is that, you know, there's a good amount of people who aren't too hot on the film, and that's fine. But even if they don't care for the documentary, they love the subject and they love his footage. And that's just Mm -hmm. testament to him, because that footage is extraordinary. You know, there are people saying, oh, I just wanted to see his footage. I don't care about the rest of them. That's fine. So would I. The problem is, this may be, the footage that's in the film, uh, and like a tiny bit on the cutting room floor that, frankly, is not that interesting. Maybe all that exists. Um, Charles's cousin, who's interviewed in the film, you know, we were filming him and we're packing up and he says to my producers, it's a shame you weren't here a few years ago. I had 200 of his tapes. Oh my God. And I, I didn't think anyone ever wanted them. So I threw them out. 
and they're all gone. Oh my gosh. And I'm just absolutely praying someone in England sees this and they happen to have an extra tape and we find more because it would just be criminal if this was all that existed. But it's still so wonderful to see the contextualization of everything in his life and work and knowing what his friends and neighbors had to say about him and his life is so fascinating. Oh, he, he was, you know, people in the village were fond of him. You know, yeah. we very intentionally at the start of the film lean into um, what was our initial reaction. And that is when you're presented with this stuff with next to no context, you are inclined to laugh at it. And I don't think there's any shame in saying that. And I think it would have come off as pretty insincere if we had attempted to paint him as this genius right at the start. Because we very intentionally edited the film so the audience goes on exactly the same journey, beat for beat, twist and turn by twist and turn, Mm -hmm. as we did. And that goes from discovering it to finding out about his life to, you know, the revelations and, you know, the, the order in which we see all this extraordinary stuff, you know, the death that surrounds him in the family and, uh, you know, the farm and all that kind of thing. And you've got to start with realizing, look, you're going to laugh at it without the context. And what's been great is I've been in these screenings with audiences. They're laughing at footage and they're gasping in horror at some of it. And then we reuse that footage later on. And there's kind of like this silence. I mean, I've been surprised the amount of tears that have been shed by audience members, actually. They found it very moving and emotional, which is great. We've, you know, mission accomplished. Um, but then as we're showing some of the footage that is intentionally funny, like he was crafting jokes and not all of them land, but a good amount do. They are laughing with him. And I think that's because we're not trying to set him up as some genius at the start. We let people discover that for themselves in the same way we came to the realization of, oh, he's actually brilliant. He's not some crazy old kook in the middle of nowhere. He's an artist and a very good one. It's really stunning the way you set that up within the context of the film and allowing the audience to discover different aspects of the artistry and the story independently of what you are doing yourselves as filmmakers in some small ways. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's really fascinating also to think about where would you go from here in terms of next steps? What are other documentary subjects that appeal to you particularly? Sure. It's funny. uh, We've had plenty of people ask, you know, when's the sequel coming out? Well, first of all, even if there was enough footage that didn't make it into this film, I think the story's told. There's not really anywhere else we can go unless there's some extraordinary revelation we don't know about. And I think we've been pretty comprehensive with compiling his life story and figuring out his chronology. Um, We are currently shooting a documentary here in Milwaukee. I can't say too much because it's very early days. Um, But that's a sort of similar vein and tone to Life on the Farm. uh, We've also produced uh, a documentary about child refugees in World War II which is very, very different in tone. And, you know, we've got a couple other things uh, in development, which are both, you know, scripted and documentary. It's funny, we never plan to get into documentaries. I mean, I, I love them. I think they're amazing. I always thought you need a certain skill set, which I didn't have. And mm-hmm. you know, we had set up a company in college and we made some money doing commercials with a bit of a humorous tint to them. Uh, and we were planning, you know, go full speed ahead into scripted and narrative work. And this footage came along, we just we realized we, we'd be foolish 
not to tell this story and make this the next big project. So uh, I need a break. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> um, we are likely to keep running festivals until April, May. Uh, we've done 12 countries so far. There could be another 20 in the docket. We might be hitting all seven continents. We've got 12 festivals in eight countries uh, across four continents alone this month. I mean, it's great uh, in that you work so hard for years yeah. and people clearly want to see the stuff. On the other hand, it, it's exhausting. It's so it much work. So I'm looking forward to just taking a bit of a break. Uh, and, you know, this documentary, this other one we're shooting here is like kind of trundling along. We shoot here and there where we can. Uh, I'm just looking forward to, you know, recharging my creative juices, as it were, yeah. and like getting onto the next project, probably in the new year. That's really great. I am right there with you, unfortunately, with the burnout because... Oh, it's it's real. My film, Our First Priority, played several festivals. And so I was at Fright Fest with that. That's amazing. That's... I did four other festivals back to back to back to back. And I really shouldn't have done that. Oh, it wipes you out. Like, you Completely. know, yeah, we, we, I probably shouldn't have done the full week in Austin. I mean, I'm glad I did. But, you know, it was Alabama right before that. And, you know, we're doing a few more across the country. Like Dom has done three different ones in Australia. I mean, he might be flying out to New Zealand. Mm. You know, Ed's running up and across the uh, up and down across the UK. We're kind of covering three continents, which is lovely. But yeah, as you know, it is absolutely exhausting. It is. And it's very strange, too, how opportunities in documentary seem to come along when you're trying really hard to get somewhere and scripted and narrative. And all of a sudden, it's like documentary wants to grab you by the throat. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on is. the one hand, with a doc, you have a camera, you go and film your subject, you know, yeah. story told. At the same time, you know, you wait years to do a scripted yep. film because you're just, you know, waiting on the finance to come through, the mm -hmm. talent that's attached with the schedule to work out. I mean, our turnaround from initial idea to, you know, you and I talking here right now and yeah, you know, we'll, we'll run out the clock with the festivals and we're hoping for some distribution. That's a little under five years, which is yeah. pretty quick turnaround for a doc. I mean, there's some docs that take people over a decade to produce. Yep. Um, so again, it's double-edged sword. It's easier to make in some ways. In others, it's just this never-ending nightmare that just drags mm -hmm. out. Whereas, you know, you're on a set for a scripted thing, you've got money, you know, use it or lose it. Like, get it shot and yeah. get out while you still can. Exactly. And it's one of those things where it, as long as you can find the money, the thing can be turned around in about a year, depending on what kind of structure it is. Yeah, we, we wrapped May of last year and we had full pitch lock and start submitting to festivals September 4th. So yeah, it was like end of May to start of September. That was our post period. Wow. Uh, and it was intense. It was very intense. But, you know, um, I, I'm just fortunate that this doc has had a relatively quick turnaround That's in great. terms of the doc world and, you know, that kind of timeline. Yeah, no, that's really impressive. Because typically people spend so long in story editing mode. I mean, honestly, like, it, it wasn't a good thing at all for anyone. But the pandemic almost kind of helped us. I mean, you know, working on this film kept me sane at, you know, what was a, a difficult time for everyone. Uh, but at the same time, Nick and Joe were, you know, as you might assume, with Chop and Steel, if you call that a fantastic best. It kind of covers their period when we were starting to work with them on this. We're not in that doc because, you know, we're not the focus. But, um, you know, they were just kind of stuck 
with not a whole lot to do. Like they, you know, they had their web show that they turned over to Zoom as opposed to live, but they couldn't hit the roads. And, you know, they'd fallen in love with this footage in 2019 when I'd interviewed them and shown them the footage. And they just, you know, came fully on board. Their fan base, the Melindas, kind of helped us with the Kickstarter. And it's that point, you know, you've got tens of thousands of dollars of other people's money. You've got to get moving. Yeah. And another ticking clock for us was not every talking head, but you've got this horrendous public health crisis and, you know, a lot of older, more vulnerable people. I mean, to put it bluntly, there's a, a number of people who would have been amazing to have in the film, but that they were dead long before we'd, you know, been able to kind of set up an interview with them. So with some of these people, like they're the few people alive who remember Charles, we had to get them. And at the same time, you've got this balance of you want to be exceptionally careful and adhere to the guidelines in terms of social distancing, wearing masks and mm-hmm. keeping them safe and keeping our crew safe. Um, and then, you know, we're kind of shooting across five US states and in post-production in Ireland and Australia and France and Germany. It's just, <laughs> it, it, it was never meant to be a transatlantic feature film. That was never the plan. It was mm-hmm. going to be a short and we'd be done in a year. And it would just take place in England. But, you know, fate has a funny way of working out, I guess. It really does. It really does. Well, it's a fantastic work. And thank you so much for sharing it with the world and for this conversation. This has been a delight. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. No, you take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.